Presidents come and go. Supreme Court justices stay for generations. Yes, I know, Mr. President. Do you know that? Asking for about 80 million friends. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF, and yes, we also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, including your favorite podcast sites, download sites. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, coming up, we'll, <clears throat> we will be joined by our old friend Mark Joseph Stern. Yay! Yay! Ace legal and court reporter over at Slate.com, who it feels like we have not spoken with in forever, Desi Doyen. But I know. I, I actually, I checked. We talked to him just last month. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, so much stuff happens in this like yep. the lo- this last week alone has been the longest year ever. It feels like forever since he's been here. He will join us momentarily to discuss the draft report issued by President Biden's so-called Blue Ribbon Commission, commission examining the uh, a possibility of Supreme Court reform through either expansion of the stolen and packed court or term limits on justices. That report was released by the panel late last week and received remarkably little coverage from the media for reasons that I'm not uh, not sure I understand. Then again, I don't think I understand the panel's findings either. So hopefully Mark can make everything clear for us, as he always does, on both that and the roller coaster rulings in recent weeks on Texas's appalling anti-abortion law that violated clearly violates Roe v. Wade, but is still allowed to remain in effect, even as the DOJ has now appealed its case to the, yes, stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, But first, there is just a ton of news today. uh, And since we got off the air yesterday, unfortunately, that means I can't cover all of it. And to be frank, I won't be able to offer much more than a few uh, fairly quick updates on several of the stories that we've been covering of late before I've got to get to Mark. 
Shortly after we got off air last night, the U.S. House Select Committee investigating the Donald Trump incited January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And by the way, it's not my opinion that it's a Donald Trump incited January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Fifty seven U.S. senators agreed that it was in the uh, uh, second impeachment of Donald Trump. Anyway, the committee voted unanimously, as I told you that they would, uh, to hold former Trump advisor Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to answer the committee's subpoena for documents and testimony. Uh, Trump has aggressively, of course, tried to block the committee's work by directing Steve Bannon and others to not answer questions in the probe. Trump has also filed his own lawsuit to try to prevent Congress from obtaining former White House documents. But lawmakers made clear on Tuesday night they will not back down as they gather facts and testimony about the attack involving Trump's supporters that left dozens of police officers injured, sent lawmakers running for their lives and interrupted the certification of Joe Biden's presidential election victory on January 6. The panel, chaired by Mississippi Democrat Benny Thompson, sent a very clear signal with this unanimous vote of the committee, made up of seven Democrats and two Republicans, including Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney, whose comments at the hearing before the committee voted uh, caught my attention, specifically this one. Mr. Bannon's and Mr. Trump's privilege arguments do, however, appear to reveal one thing. They suggest that President Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. And this committee will get to the bottom of that. There you go. Mm-hmm. Go Liz Cheney. <laughs> Never thought I'd say that. Uh, Chairman Thompson added that while Bannon may be, quote, willing to be a martyr to the disgraceful cause of whitewashing what happened on January 6th, the contempt vote is a warning to other witnesses. We won't be deterred, we won't be distracted, and we won't be delayed, Thompson said. The Tuesday evening vote now sends the contempt resolution to the full House, which is expected to vote on the measure on Thursday, if approved by the House, as also expected, the matter would then be sent to the Justice Department, which would then decide whether to pursue criminal charges against Steve Bannon. The last time something comparable to this happened was way back in the 1980s, after which the DOJ, once they received the recommendation from the House, ended up filing charges just eight days later after receiving that referral. So this can happen quickly. Now, in that case, uh, the vote was unanimous by the U.S. House. That is not expected to be the case this time. In any event, the contempt resolution asserts that the former Trump aide and podcast host has no legal standing whatsoever to rebuff the committee, uh, that there is, in fact, no so-called executive privilege for him to invoke, as Trump is trying to claim at least without the approval of the current president. And in any event, Steve Bannon had not actually worked for the White House since he was fired way back in 2017. That would, of course, be years before the attack on the Capitol this year. 
If charged by the DOJ and found guilty at, uh, at trial, Bannon could face fines and imprisonment for as long as a year. And as Cheney and Thompson have both vowed, they plan to get to the bottom of this, uh, suggesting that nobody is above the law, and that would include, I should hope, former presidents, if they are subpoenaed by a congressional committee like this one at some time in the future, and also try the same gambit to evade testimony and documents uh, as Bannon is currently trying to do. So, yeah, we will keep our eyes on this one. For sure, in the days ahead. A bit more encouraging news broke last night after we got off air. Senators Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders are reportedly seeking to reach a deal on a path forward for President Biden's economic agenda by the end of the week. This week, according to The Hill, the negotiation between the Senate's most important so-called centrist and leading progressive was described as a, quote, breakthrough by one Democratic senator and uh, amid uh, uh, stalemated talks over a Senate-passed infrastructure bill and the larger social spending bill crafted in the House and Senate. That's the so-called Build Back Better Act to greatly expand health care, education, child care, parental leave, and at least in theory, take on climate change in earnest for the first time by the federal government. The unnamed Democratic senator said describing a sense of optimism shared by multiple Senate Democrats after a lunch meeting where Manchin said that he would work directly with Sanders. That Democrat said, quote, we've made breakthroughs. Universally, there was a desire to get this done by the end of this week, said a Democratic senator who participated in the meeting and noted that Manchin indicated he will try to reach agreement with Sanders on a framework for the reconciliation package by week's end. Manchin and Sanders met for the second time this week on Tuesday night, uh, just off the Senate floor, suggesting that they are trying to work quickly to get to a deal. We will see what happens as the package is being whittled down from its previous $3.5 trillion price tag to something closer to $2 trillion. And as things like the critical clean electricity performance plan, which we discussed on yesterday's show with UC Santa Barbara climate expert Dr. Leah Stokes, are stripped from the package. Thanks to fossil fuel loving uh, Manchin, Joe Manchin, uh, his insistence. And as things like two years of free community college have also now reportedly been excised from what might have been, and in theory still could be, the most transformative package of social spending since LBJ's Great Society. Asked on Tuesday about recent skirmishing between Sanders and Manchin, Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, quote, what I've told our caucus is everyone is going to be disappointed in certain things, but everyone's going to be glad about certain things. Okay, we will see. In any event, uh, I view Manchin and, and Sanders directly talking now to be a very good thing, frankly. We will see what happens. But speaking of transformative legislation being held up in the U.S. Senate by folks like West Virginia's Joe Manchin, uh, for the third time this year, Senate Democrats on Wednesday tried to pass sweeping critical elections and voting rights legislation as a much-needed counterweight to new voting suppression laws 
that are now sweeping Republican-controlled states. Once again, Republicans blocked the Democrats. The Democratic bill known as the Freedom to Vote Act would mandate automatic voter registration as well as early and absentee voting in all 50 states. It would make Election Day a public holiday. The measure would also give all voters the right to a hand-marked paper ballot at the polling place and would block partisan gerrymandering of congressional seats, along with requiring new disclosures on dark money donations to outside groups. But amid the ongoing stalemate, according to AP, there are signs that Democrats are making at least some headway in their effort to create consensus around changing Senate procedural rules, a key step that would allow them to pass transformative voting rights legislation through the narrowly divided chamber. Senator Angus King The main independent who caucuses with Democrats recently eased his own longstanding opposition to changing the filibuster rules. That creates a 60-vote threshold currently for most legislation to pass. King said, uh, quote, I've concluded that democracy itself is more important than any Senate rule. Thank you, Senator. After the vote, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer invoked the Reconstruction era uh, following the Civil War, hailing the northern senators serving at the time for, quote, going it alone when confronted by, quote, minority obstruction. Members of this body now face a choice, he said. They can follow in the footsteps of our patriotic predecessors in this chamber, or they can sit by as the fabric of our democracy unravels before our eyes. Well, Republicans are certainly choosing to that, choosing to do that. Uh, How about Democrats? At this point, it will still require reforming the filibuster to allow passage of bills like this one to be adopted by a simple majority vote, even with all Democrats in the majority currently said to be in favor of its passage, including Joe Manchin, who approved this compromise legislation now called the Freedom to Vote Act. But he is still, along with Arizona's Kirsten Cinema, opposed to reforming the filibuster that would be needed in order to pass this bill. They had been joined by Angus King in that, but at least he now has come to the right side of the issue. Has Manchin? Has Cinema? President Biden, uh, he offered a statement before the vote saying, quote, democracy, the very soul of America, is at stake. He's right. He said it should be simple and straightforward. Let there be a debate and let there be a vote. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki also hinted that Biden may be softening his own opposition to filibuster changes. That would be good. But for now, today's vote was not enough to even allow a debate, much less a simple majority vote on the measure, as voting rights activists are now increasingly calling on Joe Biden to be more outspoken in favor of modifying the filibuster. And for, you know, they are asking him to call out Manchin and Cinema by name for their refusals so far to do so. Whether that would help, I don't actually know. I know there's a lot of folks who would like to see Biden call out Manchin by name for, uh, you know, refusing to change the filibuster here. 
I don't know if that would make Joe Manchin any more inclined to do it. But that's what more and more progressives seem to be calling for right now from the president. And it's also kind of remarkable that the corporate media is really not focusing on the fact that it is Republicans who do not want Americans to vote. Well, yeah, but it's Democrats at this point who can change that. And almost all of them want to, except for Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. True. At the same time, uh, progressives are also calling on Joe Biden to do more to reform the GOP's stolen and packed Supreme Court. Well, those progressives may be disappointed as well by the draft report that was issued late last week by the Blue Ribbon Commission that the president impaneled to review the matter. That story with the great Mark Joseph Stern is next on the broadcast where it seems we never fail to disappoint these days. <laughs> so, hey, we've succeeded at something anyway. The good fight continues straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Don't worry. Be happy. Be happy. That appears to be what this Blue Ribbon Commission wants us to believe concerning the U.S. Supreme Court. But don't worry, I'm not happy. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm never happy these days. The uh, U.S. Supreme Court begins its new term each year on the first Monday of October. That's not in the Constitution, but like many of the rules guiding the processes and procedures of the high court, including the size of the court, currently consisting of nine justices, the court's start date each year is determined by federal statute as set by the U.S. Congress and approved by the U.S. President. So the court's new term is now underway with some momentous decisions to be made in the new term regarding abortion and gun rights, among other things, as it begins in earnest with the GOP's stolen and packed 6-3 to three majority now solidly in place. That, after a summer and early fall of so-called emergency shadow docket rulings, made with minimal briefing and no oral argument whatsoever on major issues like U.S. immigration policy, a COVID eviction moratorium, and yes, abortion rights in Texas, all of which were decided with little or no comment in favor of the court's right-wingers, now packed with three Donald Trump nominees, all of whom were rammed onto the court despite being unable to receive the 60 Senate votes needed to overcome a filibuster, as had been the Senate tradition for decades. Therefore, Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans simply held a majority vote as they controlled the Senate at the time to simply do away with the filibuster rules for lifetime appointments to the highest court in the land. Yes, it was just that easy for them. But the court's new term 
has begun under a cloud of plunging popularity in the bargain. According to Gallup late last month, before the start of the new term, Americans' opinions of the U.S. Supreme Court have worsened, with just 40 percent now saying they approve of the job the high court is doing. That was down from an already fairly low 49 percent in July, but it was a drop of almost 10 points. This represents a new low in Gallup's trend survey, which dates back to 2000. The latest findings from Gallup's annual governance survey come little more than a year after a 58 percent majority of Americans had approved of the Supreme Court among the highest readings in the year's long trend survey. Now, a majority of 53 percent disapprove of the job the Supreme Court is doing, exceeding the prior high disapproval of 52 percent from back in 2016. Gallup is not the only polling outfit to note the trend of falling approval for the now far right leaning high court. It's just the latest of a series of polls confirming that the uh, seemingly quickly disappearing confidence in one of the federal institutions that traditionally had held one of the highest approval ratings among Americans. The day before Gallup's new numbers were released in late September, the Marquette University Law School poll found the U.S. Supreme Court's approval rating plummeted by more than 10 percentage points since July of this year after the court came out with its controversial shadow docket rulings on abortion, immigration and the eviction moratorium as a growing share of Americans believe the court based court rules based on politics, according to Marquette. The poll, this one from Marquette, found support for the court had dropped to 49%, down from 60% in July and 66% in last November, uh, last September, September of 2020. While still only a minority of 39% believe the court's decisions are based mainly on politics and not the law, that share is the highest that Marquette has ever recorded, up a full 10 points from 29 percent in July. Americans, the poll also finds, are nearly evenly divided on whether more justices should be added to the court, as some Democrats have pushed for in response to the Republican packing of the court under Donald Trump, with 48 percent favoring it and 51 percent disapproving. That's pretty much within the margin of error. At the same time, nonetheless, a 72 percent majority believes that there should be term limits for justices, including majorities of Democrats, Republicans and independents. So there's at least one point of Supreme Court reform that folks from all across the political spectrum all seem to agree on. Well, that's good, because earlier this year, President Joe Biden convened a blue ribbon panel to look at exactly that. Last April, President Biden ordered a study on overhauling the Supreme Court, creating a bipartisan commission that was to spend the next six months examining what AP described at the time as the politically incendiary issues of expanding the court and instituting term limits for justices. In launching the review, Biden fulfilled a campaign promise made amid pressure from activists and Democrats to realign the court after its composition tilted sharply to the right during Trump's term as the former disgraced president nominated three justices to the high court, including far-right Justice Amy Coney Barrett to replace the late liberal Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg just days before Trump 
went on to lose last year's presidential election, giving Republicans a 6-3 advantage over Democratic appointees on the court. During the campaign, Biden, an institutionalist after all, had repeatedly sidestepped questions about expanding the court. A former chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Biden himself had asserted that the system of judicial nominations is, quote, getting out of whack. But he was unwilling to say whether he supported adding seats or making other changes to the current system of lifetime appointees. The 36-member commission, composed largely of academics, was instructed to spend 180 days studying proposed changes, holding public meetings, and completing a report, but it was not charged with making a recommendation under the White House order that created it for some reason. The makeup of the court... Always a hot-button issue ignited again in 2016 when Democrats uh, declared that Republicans stole an unfair advantage by breaking with decades of tradition to block Obama's nomination of then-Judge Merrick Garland, now Biden's attorney general, to fill the seat that was left empty by the death of right-wing Justice Antonin Scalia, with then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refusing to even hold a hearing on filling the vacancy, even though Scalia's death, death was most of a full year before that year's presidential election. In the wake of that power play and the several that followed it, including ending the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees to seat Trump's first nominee, Neil Gorsuch, a phony FBI investigation to whitewash credible claims of sexual assault by Trump's second nomination, Brett Kavanaugh, and then ramming Coney Barrett onto the court just days before the 2020 presidential election concluded. Well, many progressives viewed adding seats to the court or setting term limits as really the only way to offset the influence of any one president on the court's makeup. Well, it has now been six months since Biden's blue ribbon panel of academics has been doing their work. And last week, with remarkably little fanfare or even notice by much of the corporate media, they released their draft report. A first look at its review. The uh, draft was cautious in discussing proposals for expanding the court, but also spoke at least somewhat approvingly of term limits for justices, at least as AP described it. The final report from the committee is expected in about a month and would go to the president at that time. The commission devoted a significant section of the some 200 pages of materials that it released to discussing term limits as the proposal that appears to have, quote, the most widespread and bipartisan support. But Biden was asked by reporters last Friday if he supports term limits on the Supreme Court, and he responded, quote, no. Well, why is that? During discussion of the draft report on Friday, a number of commission members said that they were in favor of term limits before studying the issue, but have since changed their minds. And why is that? To recap, as two of our favorite Supreme Court reporters, Dahlia Lithwick and Mark Joseph Stern, reminded at Slate as the draft report was released, during the six months that this commission has been preparing its report, the current Supreme Court made it harder for minorities to challenge racist voter suppression laws, harder for unions to organize, harder to learn who is contributing funds to political groups, 
It has changed the law of religious liberty through the shadow docket. It has also, in case you missed it, allowed approximately 10% of American women of childbearing age to lose their constitutional right to abortion in September. If you survey all this legal wreckage, they write, and ask what can be done about it, the commission's interim report has an answer. Nothing. And why is that? Here to help us understand all of this, hopefully, is our old friend, the great Mark Joseph Stern, who expertly covers all things having to do with the law, the U.S. court system, and when we most frequently send up the emergency Stern signal into the skies above Gotham, the now thoroughly corrupted, at least in my opinion, U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back, my friend. So glad to be here. Wish I didn't always have to come on when the news is bad. Yeah. Uh, if only there were some good things to talk about when yeah. the current signal goes up, but that's just not how this job works. No, it? that is not how this job works either. I can't remember the last time I had a guest I was happy to actually hear from. Uh, <laughs> okay, wow. I, I know. Well, you know what I'm saying. Uh, before we uh, dive in here uh, to what this commission found or didn't find or didn't recommend or did recommend against, I don't know, uh, since it was specifically tasked for some reason to not really offer recommendations. Tell me about the makeup of this 36-ish member pa uh, uh, panel of academics, which, by the way, seems like a really large panel, ironically enough, devoted to deciding whether nine people is enough to decide the weightiest of all constitutional questions and laws for the entire country, no? Yes, I totally agree. Then again, you know, nine people decide what the law is right now, mm -hmm. uh, and that's not working out so well. So maybe 36 is more in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, so this, this commission was made up of people I lovingly refer to as eggheads. They are largely law professors um, and a few former judges. Uh, a few practicing lawyers, but for the most part, people really embedded in academia who study the Supreme Court for a living, um, people who occasionally appear before the court or file briefs before the court, um, and it, notably, not a single person added to the commission had ever endorsed serious court reform in the past. There was not a single professor who had stuck their neck out for court expansion. Mm -hmm. There were many people who had said that they oppose court expansion. Uh, and so in some ways, this commission was maybe rigged from the start. You had a lot of conservatives on the panel. Now, a few of them appear to have stepped down for reasons we don't quite know. At least two members were absent from this committee meeting uh, that followed the report. Um, at least one conservative on the panel is openly a bigot who mocks transgender people online. Uh, the so-called liberals were mostly moderates and institutionalists who have a vested interest in a Supreme Court that looks favorably upon them. Uh, and so if you survey it all together, you, you, you see what is basically a faculty meeting of moderates and conservatives with a few token liberals, uh, none of whom were happy with this draft report, and none of which is a recipe for uh, any kind of real meaningful reform. Now, that's not to say that there are not uh, 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 liberal academics out there who were in favor of expanding the court uh, who, you know, could have been placed on this panel, right? It's not like it's all, you know, crazy, flaming 
lefties without any credibility uh, who are calling for expansion of the court. There are some, I, I hate to say, legitimate uh, eggheads who favored that, who could have been placed on this panel. No, I mean, it was 36 people after all. Yeah, absolutely. But they were conspicuously snubbed. Uh, people like Nico Bowie at Harvard Law School, who has spent a ton of time researching this issue, um, the history of it, advocating for uh, de- democratic reforms to the judiciary. Um, and what happened was, instead of being placed on the commission, these individuals were called to testify before the commission to, I guess, placate them uh, and their supporters. That ended huh. up being an interesting process. There was some very fiery testimony from mm-hmm. folks like Nico Bowie and uh, Leah Littman and Steve Vladek, mm-hmm. um, people who have advocated for reforms. But at the end of the day, it looks like the, the commission basically ignored them and all of their recommendations and continued to hoist up the same straw men <laughs> that we have heard over and over again from the right and from the too timid center. Um, so you're absolutely right. It's not that Biden didn't have a, a buffet of great options to <laughs> choose from. It's just that he decided not to pick any anyone who had been outspoken on this before. Very interesting. I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, back in the day when the uh, marriage equality was sort of working its way through the courts and it was determined, well, if there were any gay judges, they were not appropriate, uh, uh, you know, to, to handle these matters. It was argued at the time, whereas straight judges no problem having them sit uh, and, and overseeing these cases. I'm, I'm seeing sort of an echo of that here for some reason. Uh, Mark, uh, the, the, pa- the commission is still, you know, will reportedly take some more testimony and revise their, their draft before issuing their final report. Uh, soon, you note that the committee's material is so deeply shot through with its anxiety about, anxiety about further politicizing the court that it opts to leave the court as is as they focus on the potential effect of both expanding the court and more modest notions of imposing term limits, which, as noted in my introduction, appears to be a wildly popular idea across all political lines. So let me start there. What's the panel's concern when it comes to imposing term limits on the court since it's so popular with everyone? So the the panel assumes that the only way uh, term limits could really be imposed is by statute, uh, passed through Congress and signed by the president. And I think, practically speaking, that's correct. I don't really think we'll ever pass another constitutional amendment in this country. Um, the, this, the whole system is far too broken. Um, and so the, the panel says, well, you know, we aren't really sure about the legality of imposing term limits uh, through Congress. And we think that because there's such ambiguity there, um, it could become a, a huge uh, question mark that calls the court's actual authority into doubt and leaves the legitimate and and genuine makeup of the court, uh, again, a big question mark. You know, we could have multiple justices claiming the same seat if some have been term limited out but refuse to go. Um, And I think that that speculation is so indicative of the broader uh, timidity in this report. Mm. Um, You know, all the committee seems to do is, is plan out the worst case scenario, assume the worst of all parties involved, and then say, well, if that happens, then we're well and truly screwed. 
screwed, uh, without considering all of the many upsides of these reforms or the possibility that, you know, uh, these justices might actually follow the law and do what Congress instructs them to do. We are the only country in the world that gives life tenure to our judges and justices. It is obviously a huge mistake, but the committee comes from the perspective that it is basically a great idea and that anyone who criticizes it bears a heavy, heavy burden of proving that it would make things better. Yeah, that was uh, a point you you uh, noted with Dahlia in your uh, piece at Slate, that the panel seemed to be somewhat obsessed with what effect reforming our Supreme Court might have on other nations around the world and their high courts, which uh, seems reasonable to take note of for reasons that we can discuss. But you and Dahlia note, at least on the term limits question, that other high courts around the world do not have lifetime appointments for their top justices. I hadn't realized that. So if that's the case, then, uh, you know, this argument that, oh, if we do this, somebody might object, including some Supreme Court justice. I mean, it seems to be once again sort of governing out of fear of what might happen rather than just saying, hey, this is our country. This is our court. And this is the thing that we believe is right. And apparently people of all parties agree with that idea. Right. Exactly. Governing out of fear is the right way to put it. You know, the, the panel just projects the worst possible outcome and says, well, we think this is what's going to happen, so we shouldn't even risk it. Um, on this point, there are other really myopic elements of this report. I guess we should say draft report, mm-hmm. since it's not final. But, you know, th- this this portion about America being a leader to the rest of the world and that if we alter our court, it might hurt other nations. I I take the point, but this report does not even begin to grapple with the fact that no other country except arguably India gives its high court nearly as much power as we do. No European nation uh, gives its high court the unfettered ability to veto all legislation. No other nation, not Israel, not Chile or Argentina, not Mexico, not Canada, none of them allow the court to simply smack down any kind of legislative action that it deems to be violative of the Constitution. That's not how judicial review works anywhere else. And so I think if, if these scholars took a look around and maybe spoke to some international law professors and lawyers, they would realize that other countries have decided our system doesn't work too well, <laughs> that they want to do something different. And I think there's a lot of merit to that, and I find it very disappointing that they don't even grapple with it. What of, what of the argument that, uh, I mean, because it seems legit that, you know, making uh, changes to the number of seats on the court, uh, even in response to an arguable coup that packed it in the first place, as I see it, uh, that might then be used by other countries to grant legitimacy to the idea of simply changing the makeup of the court each and every time uh, that a, a, a new regime comes to power. Is, is that a legit concern? It is a legitimate concern. I think it's very overblown and somewhat misguided, in part because, like I said, in no other country except India do courts have so much influence over the political process or such a robust veto power over the political process. So 
if other countries looked at court expansion in the United States and said, let's do that, it just wouldn't matter as much as the commission seems to fear, Mm -hmm. because other countries do not structure their judiciary the way that we do. They do not entrust unelected, life-tenured philosopher kings and queens uh, to decide pretty much every major and minor policy question uh, on God's green earth. (laughs) Um, So it, it is a concern in places like Poland, but the reality is that the the Polish government's interference with the judiciary, while awful and inexcusable, is not uh, number one on the list of terrible things that the Polish government is doing, and expanding the court here would be salutary in a way that might make America better positioned to fight back against what Poland is doing. Frankly, our current conservative majority is more aligned with the Polish government that's attacking the court uh, than it is with the court itself before it was interfered with. You know, in other words, the Polish government Mm -hmm. shares a lot of positions with conservative judges here. The panel seems to think, oh, well, what if we let the Polish government just have carte blanche over the courts? Well, we've basically (laughs) instituted our own Polish government here in our federal judiciary. Yeah, we have. uh, On the the idea of, of specifically on the uh, court expansion, Mark Justice during the committee expressly warns against it, noting, quote, the risks of court expansion are considerable, including that it could undermine the very goal of some of its proponents of restoring the court's legitimacy. Recent polls suggest that a majority of the public does not support court expansion. Okay, so uh, if, 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 if the idea that negative polling against court expansion should be a reason to avoid it, why isn't polling that strongly favors term limits an argument in its favor? Am I missing something? Because it's a one-way ratchet, because over and over again, the panel uses public opinion polling to caution against things it doesn't like, and then ignores public opinion Mm. polling when public opinion supports things that the panel doesn't like. So, you know, I think that there is a reasonable concern about public opinion on court expansion. I think it's true that not a majority supports it Mm -hmm. yet. We are still working our way there. I, I, I am optimistic, but, you know, maybe that's reason for some doubt and, and further consideration. Mm-hmm. But on term limits, the polling is overwhelming. And most critically, it's bipartisan. My deepest concern at the end of the day about this report may be that it throws cold water on this bipartisan momentum for term limits. Mm-hmm. And, and I fear mm-hmm. that it's only going to allow the issue to calcify and polarize the way that everything else has in this country. I am worried that this is going to allow Republicans to become the party against term limits, claiming the mantle of the Constitution, Mm. saying even Joe Biden's court commission opposes term limits, while Democrats are left kind of flailing in the wind when this is just basic good government policy. It has nothing to do with politics and everything to do with the fact that people did not live into their 90s when the Constitution was ratified. Mm -hmm. And giving anyone that much power for so long is just objectively crazy. So uh, is it too cynical of me to note uh, here, Mark, uh, and I don't think it is based on some of your earlier comments, but, you know, looking at this, the commission seems to be doing exactly what it was intended to do, to kick the can down the road, to avoid any changes at all, any real changes, any changes at all, really. Uh, And that's really the only reason I can come up with for requesting a report, for example, that is specifically 
uh, you know, directs the panel to not make any recommendations. I think you're very cynical, and I think you're probably correct. <laughs> you know, we knew all along that Joe Biden was not a huge proponent of court expansion, right? He has suggested he doesn't like it. Now he's come out and just said he opposes it. And this was a way for him to try to kind of tamp down uh, left-wing enthusiasm for court expansion mm. uh, to to just sort of shift the conversation away toward this commission and give him some breathing room while he enacted other parts of his agenda. Mm -hmm. See how well that's going. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I think for Biden, this gives him the patina of scholarly neutrality and legitimacy to mm. say, well, I kicked this question to some very intelligent people, and they said no, and I'm going to agree with them. If he wanted them to reach a different conclusion, he would have put different people on this commission. I really believe that the criteria for who's in and who's out came from the president, came from the White House, and by stacking this panel with skeptics of court reform, they got what they asked for. They did, and it, as you say, hands Republicans a solid talking point against court reform for many years in the future. Um, Mark, I want to uh, get to a break uh, shortly and come back to ask you about uh, th this uh, Texas this Texas abortion law. But uh, one more point here. Y you write that uh, the report here starts from the proposition that politicization and polarization around the court are something that just happened. The blame drifts down upon both parties like an early autumn snow, you write. First, I'm wondering uh, how so, how, how is that, how do you see that in this report? And was this uh, the belief of the panelists or was this simply a convention they used to avoid discussion of how we got here? You know, so they could simply focus on what should happen now. And, and in either case, how would an examination of how we got into this mess have either been helpful or har harmful to the panel's mandate, as you see it? So the, the commission tells the story of how we got here. It doesn't ignore it altogether. Instead, it, it tells this narrative of how we got to our current moment. And that is where it really lays equal blame at the feet of both parties. So it talks about Bork, and then it talks about... Bork? Uh, really? <laughs> yes. It talks about oh Democrats allowing a vote on Robert Bork uh -huh. and voting him down. Uh, it talks about the blockade of Merrick Garland. It talks about busting the filibuster to get Neil Gorsuch on the bench, uh, it, betraying or ignoring the so-called Garland rule uh -huh. to put Amy Coney Barrett on the bench. And it essentially implies that both parties are just using equal amounts of uh, <laughs> hardball politics to capture the court. So, so uh, you just know. detailed, just to be clear here, you just detailed about three or four or five transgressions by the Republicans to game the court within the past uh, year or two or three. And to balance this out, they go all the way back to, what, the 1980s, uh, Robert Bork, and say, well, see, both sides do it. That's, yeah, that's, that's, the... that's pretty much it. And oh uh, just, just to give some examples here, I mean, the committee quotes 
um, Chuck Grassley in 2016 claiming that uh, the, the Senate simply does not consider Supreme Court nominees in an election year. It doesn't note that that was a lie, that <laughs> Anthony Kennedy yes. was confirmed in 1988, which was an election year, that Republicans won. And so by uncritically repeating these Republican lies, yep. the panel suggests that they're true, when, again, they're just not. And that is the kind of thing we should not expect from these scholars. Do, we should expect more and better from them. Should we expect that that sort of crap, uh, those lies will be at least corrected when the uh, uh, committee issues its final report in the next month, the next few weeks? So at this meeting that followed the release of the draft, several uh, members of this commission, including Sherilyn Eiffel, head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, spoke out against this kind of language, spoke out against many aspects of the draft. It is unclear who exactly authored this draft. I can only hope that people like Sherilyn Eiffel have a major role in revising it and at a bare minimum can ensure that it has a baseline of accuracy when the final report is put out. That would be nice. And if that final report changes, which frankly I don't expect it will all that much, but if it changes, I will look forward to having you on to uh, to talk about it. Uh, Mark, let me take a, a, a very quick break here. I've only got a few more minutes. Uh, can you stick around so I can ask you about this Texas abortion case that's uh, now back at the U.S. Supreme Court? For you, anything. You are the best. Stand by. Mark Joseph Stern uh, of Slate.com. Take a quick break, and we'll be back with those uh, our, our closing few minutes here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you, who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. The stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Yeah, the stars aren't quite as bright in Texas these days. Even uh, Desi Doyen is having trouble clapping for that one, despite it being uh, statutorily mandated for all Texans. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our friend Mark Joseph Slate, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate, uh, who covers law and the court system and the U.S. Supreme Court and everything else at uh, slate.com, has been kind enough to stick with us for just another minute or two. Mark, I want to ask you about this um, this uh, Texas abortion uh, case, SB8, uh, it was decided on the shadow docket uh, a few weeks ago at the U.S. Supreme Court. They uh, well, they essentially allowed that law, Texas SB8 law, banning abortions after six weeks before most women know they are pregnant. No exceptions for rape or incest. They allowed that to go into effect, claiming that it was unclear who, if anyone, had actual standing in that particular case to sue. There was nothing they could do about it. Well, it went into effect. Shortly thereafter, the Department of Justice jumped in. They filed a suit in federal court because they do have standing to challenge this Texas law. And a U.S. District Court judge strongly agreed with the Department of Justice and placed that uh, that law, placed a stay, a, a temporary injunction, I guess, on that law until the matter could be properly heard. But then, of course, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, the uh, arguably the most right-wing court in the nation, 
unstayed the case and the law and now uh, it went back into effect and the DOJ has now appealed directly back to the U.S. Supreme Court. So two questions quickly here on on what possible grounds could the Fifth Circuit allow this law to take effect without any kind of hearing when even Chief Justice John Roberts in the original shadow docket decision seemed to concur that this was a blatant violation of the long-established precedent of Roe v. Wade? Excellent question, and unfortunately we don't really have an answer because the Fifth Circuit's two-to-one decision reinstating the law after a lower court judge blocked it had one sentence of analysis which was simply a citation to the court's previous shadow docket decision. Notably, it did not grapple with the fact that in that case, the plaintiffs were private abortion clinics. Uh And in this case, the plaintiff is the United States of America, as represented by the Justice Department, uh, which notably, waves away almost all of the procedural obstacles that the court cited in that shadow docket decision refusing Uh to block the law. So we just don't know what the Fifth Circuit thought. The reality is it probably thought almost nothing and just said, we hate abortion. Wow. Wow. And and because there is no... I mean, I don't think there's any real doubt that this violates Roe v. Wade. The uh, justices and the Fifth Circuit may, you know, feel they don't like the Roe precedent. But I don't think there's any question that this would seem to violate it, A, and B, the fact that the Justice Department uh, does have uh, standing here to sue, right? There's no question that they are allowed to sue against a, a, a law like this in Texas, No. So some conservatives argue otherwise, but I think you're correct, and many, many lawyers agree. Um, You know, the the big issue in the previous case was uh, sovereign immunity. You can't sue a state if you're a private plaintiff. And so the question was, who do we sue? The the plaintiffs tried to sue uh, the judges who would enforce the law, county clerks, Mm -hmm. and the court said, "We we don't really think you can do that. But the United States gets to sue the state of Texas, Mm -hmm. and that makes all the difference. That is a time-honored tradition going back hundreds of years. Uh, And so, again, like, if if the Justice Department is bringing suit, it's just not clear what remaining procedural obstacles there are. They should be waved away very quickly. I would love to see the Supreme Court do that, but unfortunately, it looks like the court is not going to act super quickly to, uh, to lift this Texas law and allow women to exercise their rights once again. Which is my final question. Instead, uh, the DOJ, I guess, could have asked for an on-bank decision by the by the Fifth Circuit rather than a three-judge panel. They decided against that. Let's go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, for an appeal. I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea, but just... Um, uh, you know, what What do we expect just procedurally will happen now at the Supreme Court now that the case is back in their court? Will they uh, you, you suggest they're going to be in no rush, but are they going to, uh, you know, put an injunction on this until it can be heard? Are they going to add it to the Mississippi abortion case that's coming up? Do we have any indication where this goes from here at this point? Yeah, so the court is currently considering the Justice Department's request, and at the same time, it agreed to expedite reconsideration of the private plaintiff's suits. Uh, And both of those are under consideration right now, Mm -hmm. and it appears 
possible, if not likely, that the court is going to move this issue off of the shadow docket into the light, onto the regular docket, and potentially hold oral arguments sometime this fall. Um, that means that the court could be deciding the Texas case alongside the Mississippi case, which is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, um, and that would give the court a broader buffet of options when issuing its decisions at the end of this term. The big question, if that occurs, is whether the Supreme Court will issue a stay mm-hmm. that, that prevents Texas from enforcing its law in the meantime. That is the question right now, and I would not even dare to wager an answer because I think it's anyone's guess. And as you note at Slate.com, uh, in the meantime, while the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decides, that law is in effect and effectively present, uh, prevents 10 percent of women in America from being able to obtain a legal abortion in their own home state while they dither on this, uh, despite the fact that it's in violation of long-standing precedent, which in and of itself, Mark, uh, seems to me we're in big trouble when it comes to this court and their uh, interest in basically ignoring decades of precedent to do whatever they want. Am I right to be very concerned? You should be terrified. We should all be terrified. And we should all be aware that if we choose not to expand the court, that we're going to have to live with this current conservative supermajority for years, if not decades. Thank you, Mark. Joseph Stern, your work is now done here. We are all terrified. Well done. Uh, You can uh, be more terrified uh, by Mark by uh, stopping by Slate.com. You can follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Of course, he he, uh, covers law, the court system, U.S. Supreme Court, election law, LGBTQ issues, and everything else at Slate.com. Mark Joseph Stern, my friend, always a joy talking to you no matter what it is we're talking about. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, Brad. Okay, Desi Doyen, I told you at the top of the show, we never fail to disappoint here on the <laughs> broadcast. I feel we've done exactly that. I, I hope everyone enjoyed it. <laughs> Terrified and disappointed, just like we like to leave them. All right. Uh, anyway, thank you very much. I got to get out. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope it wasn't too terrible. If you missed any portion of today's program or you just wish to be terrified and disappointed again, (laughs) you can download this show or any other anytime at bradblog.com. While you're there, hey, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves, telling you the truth, whether it's disappointing, terrifying, or otherwise, five days a week. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. That is it. We will see you there until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.